Hey everyone, it's Thanksgiving week, it's Tuesday, November 21st, and for me, the most important week of the year, when we give thanks for the great things in our lives, so thank you to all of our listeners, our guests, and of course, the pre-construction and estimating network that is growing by the day. Uh, on the ep- on this episode, uh, today we have a BIM advocate, Bill Allen, out of Colorado. He is president of Evolve Labs and On Point Scans. Bill is what I would like to say a thought-provoking leader within the BIM uh, space. He loves a good debate, just questioning the norm, um, and he loves drilling up heavy dialogue, which can only be good. A um, couple of things that we discuss on the podcast, computational design, uh, or as he calls it, computational construction. He, he gives us an idea. He's a little. He's doing a little bit of teaching at the moment, so he, he gives us his ideas around teaching and training the next generation of BIM VDC professionals. Uh, we discuss the shared data within the model, modular construction, architectural challenges, uh, capturing as built. Uh, and one of the, the the one thing that I did enjoy with this is how he relaxes in Colorado. He has something what's called I've never heard of it. It's called a summer board. It's basically an electrical snowboard like skateboard. That sounds pretty dangerous, and it is pretty dangerous. But I'll let him, him, uh, Bill, kind of give you a rundown on that. Again, before we speak with Bill, let's speak with our main sponsor, Beck Technology. And up first, we're going to hear from their president, Stuart Carroll. Hey, everyone. I'm Stuart Carroll. I'm the president at Beck Technology. We are based in Dallas, Texas, and we are a pre-construction software company. We were founded in 1996, and we've really been focused on the world of pre-construction. We believe that pre-construction is where the biggest decisions that impact the outcome of a project occur. And we believe that through the use of technology, we can enable our users to make better, more informed pre-construction decisions. The net result of which is to make the world a better place. We're excited to uh, announce our partnership with Niche. And one of the things that really excites me is bringing pre-construction professionals the opportunity to get certified in our latest uh, product, Destiny Estimator. It's our belief that if we can help you understand how integrated pre-construction and pre-construction data lifecycle can benefit your business, um, it will ultimately improve the pre-construction services that you bring to your customers. And we'd like to uh, announce that we're gonna be releasing this at the end of Q1, and it's available to anybody that's a friend of Niche. Bill Allen, welcome to the Pre-Construction Podcast. Thanks for having me, Gary. Appreciate it. Good, good. Thanks for coming on. Um, Bill Allen, for anybody that doesn't know you, you're currently president of Evolve Lab. Um, before that, give us a quick overview of your career and how did, it, how did you become president of your own, own firm? Yeah, so uh, prior to Evolve Lab, I worked primarily in architecture, working on stadiums and hospitals. I worked at a HDR architecture for eight years, um, was part of uh, working on a lot of East Coast projects and Terry Lee hospitals, projects in Omaha, Nebraska, the Buffett Cancer Center. Um, and then I moved out to Colorado seven years ago uh, as a BIM manager at Oz Architecture, BIM manager at Lance Bojo Architects, uh, and then 2015 started Evolve Lab. 
Beautiful, lovely. And how is it being your own boss? Uh, it is the hardest job of my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I can I can second that. It's not easy. Everybody no. thinks it's everybody thinks it's sunshine and roses, but it it's far from it. Yeah, it's like uh, yeah, work, be your own boss so you can set your own hours and, and work when you. It's like oh, do you mean like on nights and weekends, like running payroll and <laughs> exactly managing your website and all of that? It's, so. it's it's much more difficult to set your own own hours that you're not working. It's uh, a lot quicker. Yeah, but that's and, that's right. Cool. So give us an idea. Eight years at HDR, obviously that's the, the crux of your career prior to, to starting Evolve. Um, how, how was it? And I mean, again, great experience. We all know HDR, fantastic company working on huge projects, great projects. Um, I'm sure it was a great development for you. And then how did, within eight years, how did you see it evolving, the, the BIM side? Yeah, for sure. So like when I was there uh, is when we started to adopt BIM and use BIM as part of our process. Uh, one of the cool things about working at HDR is it is a full service firm. So it had structure, architecture, mechanical, electrical, plumbing, signage and wayfinding, healthcare consulting. Um, and so, and then I was in their corporate office, the, the mothership as they called it. And so in Omaha, Nebraska. And so you had all the executive team for, you know, HDR uh, overall there. And so a big part of what we were trying to do in that corporate office was to set protocol standards, having bit meetings, et cetera to kind of understand how we were gonna execute projects, you know, from our BIM execution plan all the way through the entire process. So yeah, that was, uh, that was a, big, a big learning curve and pretty pinnacle for, uh, you know, what I felt like was a foundation for the rest of my career. Um, and then also we had uh, BIMBO, the BIM board of uh, Omaha uh, that I was on <laughs> as well. <laughs> Who came up with that name? I love it. Yeah, I think it was Todd Shackelford there. So shout out to Todd uh, in Omaha. Uh, I think he, he started that uh, and invited me to be a part of it. Um, and so, yeah, we had uh, BIMBO, the BIM board of Omaha. Uh, and so that was kind of cool to transcend outside and, and learn how other companies were operating as well. So, Good. Yeah. And let's, I have to say, I started this pre-construction podcast at the beginning of the year. And I'm doing everything, owners, architects, engineers, contractors. Um, but within the BIM BDC kind of, it's almost like a, a vertical in itself. Everybody's super helpful. They really do look after each other. And if there's anything you need, they're always willing to help. Totally. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, the culture around uh, pre-construction subcontractors, uh, it's a great group. I like it. Good, good, love it. Um, so obviously, HDR. Um, that went went. You you were a professor for a year. How was that? Did, did that give you an insight into, or, or sorry, that was actually that was your along with your last year at, at HDR, isn't that right? Yeah. Um, yeah. How was yeah, that? I, how was it kind of teaching the next generation? Yeah. So I was uh, teaching at University of Nebraska Omaha, um, part of their engineering group. And the main goal was to try to prepare them for what I wanted to do is there was a lot of criticism around academia and, and really not preparing students very well for real world scenarios. So doing a lot of uh, great design principles, but not teaching people how buildings go together or teaching people how to use leverage the software in real world scenarios. And so the thing I really wanted to try to do uh, as part of my mission when I was there was to try to really teach the students real world applications uh, for design, engineering, uh, fabrication, installation, uh, and the overall process. We talked contracts. Um, yeah, to try to really try to prepare them as, as much as I could, with, given my experience at HDR uh, for a real world scenario on actual projects. 
I love it. And I'm sure they, they got real value in that. Funny, I've got a podcast. I did it. I recorded it at the beginning of the week. It's going to be coming out in the next two weeks with Nick Sensky. Um, he's professor at Iowa State. And he talks about a lot of what we're going to talk about, especially computational design within construction. So I'm really looking forward to that coming out, but also complementing his chat with your chat um, because I think they'll, they'll go really well together. Um, so let's jump straight into that now. Um, before we go into computational design within construction, and, and that's kind of what, what, what's happening right now, let's go back and talk about generative design. Um, I think you did a, a, an article or a, a, a bit of information on generative design is doomed to fail. Give us a kind of a, a background on that and give us your thoughts. Yeah, for sure. So a good friend of mine, Daniel Davis, did an article called Generative Design is Doomed to Fail. And it's kind of a critique of a lot of the Autodesk uh, marketing material that we're receiving these days as of recent. And uh, it was really kind of a question back uh, as a counterpoint asking, uh, is generative design doomed to fail? To kind of question some of those principles and understand there are issues, challenges around generative design, computational design. Uh, but is it, quote, doomed to fail? You know, are, are we able to overcome some of these obstacles and some of these challenges uh, as a race and as, as an industry? So uh, that was one of uh, the things that I wanted to kind of ask as a counterpoint to encourage like healthy dialogue, healthy conversation, uh, iron sharpening iron and seeing if we actually <laughs> uh, felt like it was doomed to fail. And so it's just a, a, a counterpoint or a, a counter argument uh, to Daniel's post, which I, again, I appreciate Daniel is, very thought-provoking and, and it really spurred a lot of great conversations so good and that's yeah. what it's all about it's all about challenging each other and making making this world a little bit better and, and how we build things um and give us an idea of, of co the couple of things that came out of that that maybe you were surprised about yeah for sure so like one of the the most common i think misconceptions and and the point that he made was is uh he said um more options don't necessarily mean best options so we get all these you know, marketing material, you get thousands of options, but does that actually mean that it's a better design? And so uh, I actually agree with him, you know, more options doesn't necessarily mean uh, better options. However, to go back to my days at HDR, I remember, you know, I'd work eight, 10 hours a day. There's only so many designs I could crank out in that amount of time. And yeah. so being in, if you think of your time, my time and, and Warren Buffett, all of us, the common thing we have in common is, is uh, 24 hours in a day. We, only we all have the same amount of time. But what generative design allows us to do is create more designs uh, with the same amount of time, which is pretty yeah. fascinating if you think about it. It's, it's this time multiplier. And then if you multiply that by data, that's the key. That's, that was my counterpoint is like, okay, more designs don't necessarily mean a better design. However, if you leverage data associated to that design as part of analytics and optimization, uh, you can actually come up with a better design, in my opinion. And further, his point was, is that you don't really have a nice way to interrogate these designs. But my counterpoint was, you actually do get these nice parallel graph charts, and you can do cross product optimization. And so being able to leverage min mins and maxes as it relates to those, the, the data um, allows you to have a better design, ultimately. Yeah, and, and, and essentially, I, I interviewed an architect in, down in Charlotte recently as well, and he basically says, BIM has allowed me to do what I should be doing, which is actually putting out more designs. Definitely, for sure, yeah. And, and that, that, has to be, that has to be good on all points. Um, so that, and, and then 
how does that tie in now with computational design? Um, how is that going to help architects, contractors come up with more designs, better designs? Yeah, so one of the things I did not anticipate starting Evolve Lab, uh, you know, my background's been architecture and um, we're now working with KHS and S construction, PCL construction, Mortensen construction, um, working on leveraging computational design principles for construction. And so this is something I absolutely did not anticipate. And I, I haven't seen it anywhere really published, but uh, what I'm calling it is, is computational construction. And so the idea of applying these principles to that process. Um, so I think that architects, uh, a lot of the publications go and they get to have a lot of the fun. But if you think of contractors leveraging some of these things, uh, being able, you know, like as an example, we created a, a hangar heat map, you know, for Mortensen construction or to be able to do auto routing, you know, rather than uh, having these very long exhaustive coordination meetings, wouldn't it be sweet if you could optimize pipe and duct work and things like that, generatively modeling those rather than spending hours and weeks in a trailer trying to move a piece of duct work or a piece of uh, pipe, you know, to have it auto route. And, and to think about, you could say, you know, minima, minimum amount of bends with the maximum amount of airflow quality, uh, with the minimum amount of distance, you know, so that's a very it, real example of applying some of those kind of computational principles towards MEP in fabrication. Yeah. So um, that's that's something that I think is absolutely very, very exciting. I think we're very just on the cusp of something very special in that industry. Brilliant. And, and it's amazing. You, you pointed out as well. It's amazing how much the general contractor is taking this on board. I mean, usually they would have just left it to the architect and the architect would have kind of put, sent it to them whether it was half done, a quarter done, not done at all. But now they're literally taking control from very, very early stage. And even, even never mind the, the, the contractor, the subcontractors are getting involved at a very early stage, whether it is the, the, the electrical or the mechanical contractor. This can only be a good thing. 100%. Yeah, we're seeing a fundamental shift in risk allocation going from architects to contractors, subcontractors, and they're being rewarded for that risk, both financially, uh, as well as projects. So I think it's a huge opportunity for them. Plus, it's just pragmatic. Like, I can't tell you how many coordination projects I've been on, where you receive some kind of design MEP model, and it's just garbage, to be frank, yeah. you know, like, there's just literally pipes running inside the ductwork. Uh, the stuff doesn't fit in the chase. And so when you're not figuring out those issues, and then, you know, in construction, now you're having to move walls, you're having to drop ceilings, uh, make the chase bigger because it wasn't well designed at the front end. So like if you can get those subcontractors and contractors on earlier to help with that process, that's only going to make the project better for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And are you seeing a shift? Um, you may see this because you, you basically deal, deal with them all, the owners, the architects, and the contractors. You're talking about risk there. Do you see, um, you're, getting, you're getting a shift towards the, the contractor. Do you see at the end of that shift, the contractor being the sole proprietary of the model and, and them running it? It's a really good question. I mean, ultimately, I, I would say the owner owns it if they're paying for, if they're writing the check, you know, like they're going to yeah, receive okay. the model. So I would say the owner ultimately downstream would receive the model. Uh, contractors though are taking on a lot of the risk and it, it does beg the question of who owns the data associated to the model. I think contracts help with that and contracts are catching up to that question. Um, but I would advocate in, in my personal opinion, say the owner should own it um, given that they're paying for the data set. 
Yeah, and that's that. That was my next question. The data set. I mean, we, I think you mentioned it pre pre recording. It's data is now what worth more than than gold and oil. I mean, will will the owner? I mean, surely the, the contractor, especially if they're going to do these projects from every two years, similar projects. Surely it's within their interest to keep the data, or even ask the owner as part of the contract. To, to have a copy of the data or, or the data itself? Yeah, it's a really good question. Yeah, I think uh, they should. And I think it comes down to, uh, can you share the data? Can you, it, almost like software, can you sub-license the data back to the contractor? Um, how do we monetize data associated to that? I think we're really on the early stages of that. And no one has, in my opinion, has really had the conversation, or I haven't at least, uh, to talk about ownership of the data and who owns it, uh, quote unquote, in, in, its, in its most macro sense, you know, like who, if, if contractors are authoring the data, maybe they should own it. Uh, I think we talk about models, model handoffs, data sets, things like that. Um, but I haven't seen anything that would limit uh, a general contractor or subcontractor from leveraging that data on future projects, keeping it on their servers, um, et cetera. However, I would also, as a counterpoint to that, would say that that should not negate the owner from also leveraging that data. And I think yeah. it's also, it's, it's good healthy conference, conversation of the de democratization of data and, and how we're able to share data with each other or not share. And if people feel like it's proprietary to them and their process, it's a really good question. I, I would say I don't have the, the answer on that, but I think we should definitely have a conversation about it. Brilliant, big, big time. And then the whole extraction of data from historical projects, you mentioned that's quite a lot of what you do right now at Evolve Lab. Give me an idea of that process and, and how many contractors do you see are willing to do that, willing to put in the time and the resources? Yeah, definitely. Um, we're seeing it all across spectrums, architects, engineers, and contractors uh, doing project data extraction. And the benefit is, is hindsight uh, is always twenty twenty, right? So if we're able to look at projects, we might have an idea about how much a project costs, procurement of that project, um, but to be able to go back and actually start to leverage um, data extraction for these, building up dashboards, that's a big part of what we do. And so we're seeing a lot of contractors, both from a, an estimation standpoint, from a scheduling standpoint, sequencing, okay, this is what we thought the schedule was gonna be, this is what it actually ended up being, this is what we thought the project was gonna cost, this is what it actually cost, um, and then, you know, a lot of contractors have their own kind of proprietary Excel spreadsheets and project material costing and things like that, but we're not, no one's really connecting the dots between those spreadsheets and the model and being able to create that connection of the project. And then having uh, all of these projects uh, come into a central repository as a database uh, to be able to leverage that information for said future projects. Um, so yeah, we're doing a lot of data extraction right now and then building out the dashboards, you know, for those, those contractors. Brilliant. I love it. And then you mentioned a couple of big uh, contractors there, PCL, Morton and um, but you, you do target and work with a lot of small to medium sized businesses. Um, it must be great for them to be able to kind of just bring you on and, and say, listen, this bill is what we're really looking for. This is how can you help us? Um, how much satisfaction do you get in that? Because like you, I'm a, we're a small to medium-sized business. Um, we're not all, we don't always have the resources of the big guys. Um, do you see more and more SMEs coming to you and saying, listen, how can we leverage your, your knowledge? Yeah, so not, not as a pitch for us, but that's the whole reason I started Evolve Lab is 
I was a bit manager at these other bigger firms, you know, uh, 10,000 plus employees. Uh, you have your national BIM director and your digital design manager in a, every office and then your digital design. I mean, it is a spider web of support for these massive firms. And what I noticed was you have all these kind of small to medium sized firms. They don't have the overhead for, you know, this full time BIM director, uh, but they still need to implement these processes to compete, you know, with yeah. some of these bigger guys. Um, and so that's a big part of what we do is trying to support the small to medium sized firms uh, to leverage computational construction and to leverage uh, data driven design uh, without necessarily having the overhead of a full time, you know, BIM director of EDC. So, Bill, yeah, thanks for that, uh, that overview on data. I mean, data to me, it's, it's going to be the future. And I think you, you said that as well. Another thing that that's really hot at the moment and topical is modular construction prefabrication. And I know that's something that, that you come across all the time. Give us an idea of what's happening out there in that space. Yeah, for sure. So I think uh, what might help with that is the context of like, I was trying to push some of this about 10 plus years ago. And some of the criticism I received around it is, you know, like when we apply uh, these kind of techniques to a car, you know, like, okay, we have this industrial revolution and you have the assembly line, uh, the idea was, could you start applying some of these same kind of uh, industrial principles to uh, buildings? And the criticism around that is that, you know, every building's different. It's unique. You, you're not building uh, the same, you know, Toyota Camry uh, on this assembly line. You're building a new hospital or a civic center or uh, a strip mall or whatever. But the idea of modular construction is, the, is, is I think it's a, a scalability and a pixelation. So, if you have a building that you can break down into a kit of parts, then it becomes scalable. So a good example of this is like prescient, okay? They're still using kind of stick frame construction, metal, metal studs, uh, but what they do is they have it based on um, a, a two foot grid spacing, this kind of modular set of constraints and rules. And so if you could start to apply a scalability um, to, these, to these items, uh, in that kind of kit of parts. I think that's where modular construction really shines. And then also, I mean, there's only so many different ways you can design a kitchen or a bathroom. So, I mean, when you have, you know, a, a set of uh, different designs, layouts, those things can be prefabricated. And the, the other nice thing about this is that it's not contingent on weather and other things. You're able to build these things inside of a warehouse. The one hard part is distribution and, and being able to ship them. Uh, you know, where do you put you know, your bathroom at and then put it on a flatbed, ship it off to a site. Those are some of the challenges that we have to overcome is, is as it relates to uh, having the, the roadways and getting things to places in a timely, efficient manner. But we're not contingent on other things uh, like weather and other uh, metrics such as that. So. Yeah, and I, I love your comparison to, to the cars because if you think about it, and now listen, I'm not a car guy or, or, or how they go together, but from what I do know from dealing with cars and mechanics, 10, 15, it might have been 20, 25, 30 years ago, a car was built um, in Germany, Mercedes-Benz, uh, it was all built there. But now if you go and buy a car, it might have a Peugeot engine or a Citro Citroen engine, um, and it's just it's just a different facade, and it literally is a, a combination of United Nations kind of parts and shipping from everywhere. So I mean, is you, is you, and, and that is exactly what you said. If you break down a hospital into all different parts, they can be built everywhere and just brought on site right away and just put together. Yeah, no, that's a really good analogy and really good point that you just made. 
100% agree with you for sure. Yeah, yeah, very good. Um, and then the other thing and topic, and I hear it all the time, we had a great uh, Chad Holbrook, um, a great interview. He was a BIM VDC manager for um, down in Charlotte, and he talked about 3D scanning. Um, now, I know this is a, a thing that you're getting demand from, uh, a, a lot from clients, and then historical buildings, 3D scanning, and then putting as built together. Um, how difficult is that and how important is it, especially for facilities management firms or, or, or completely integrated companies that are looking after them afterwards? Yeah, for sure. So the whole, I think it's fascinating. Like I very much geek out about the whole photogrammetry, LIDAR scanning, all the different scanners and, and the output you get from those. I think the problem that we've had traditionally with the way that we've tried to capture as at least speaking for myself personally, I've been out there on site with a notepad and a laser and trying to put down measurements. And then you go back to the office, you're like, shit, I forgot to get the window seal. Or you go back, you start modeling, you have this bust uh, on the corner. Is it a seven? Is it a four? I don't know. Uh, where, where like a laser scan captures everything. As long as you can see it, you can scan it. And so um, I think that's where it's extremely advantageous. Uh, both from a, a risk standpoint, right? Because now we're not writing down wrong numbers or it's not prone to the human error. Uh, but also from an efficiency standpoint, you can drop these and they're get, only getting faster. Like you used to have just, you know, scanner on a tripod, you move it every five to seven feet, try to get all the overlap. Uh, now the scanners are getting so darn efficient that you can just walk with one on your backpack uh, or even the idea of robotics, you know, putting these things on a, just, on a robot. Just, just send spot in, huh? That's right. Yeah. Just send, yeah. send it out there. Uh, so I think that's absolutely fascinating. And so we wanted to start getting into that, not really from a, a business stand, but just because I geek out about it. I think it's a, it's a cool technology. And uh, that's part of why we do what we do is because it's fun. So uh, that's why. We, so we started on point scanning uh, about two years ago uh, as an opportunity to do kind of more as built captures. Um, so we're doing more, I would say, like LIDAR scanning. Uh, for uh, architects, and then we're doing more kind of like photogrammetry, construction progress scanning uh, for contractors because they want to see where the pipe is before they sheetrock and, and where uh, we actually had an issue where they were arguing about a can light. They're like, oh, there's a can light there. No, there's not. Yes, there is. No, there's not. Yes, there is. <laughs> and sure enough, someone had drywalled, you know, over the can light uh, in the project and they wow. never cut it back out. And we were looking at the scan and sure enough, like in the scan, there was a can light, you know, behind the sheetrock. So, right. yeah, that's, and that's, that, that, that's it. I mean, to me, safety is, is paramount and safety can start within pre-construction. It doesn't start whenever the, the, the project is, uh, there's a their hole in the ground. And I think that's a fascinating side, side to it as well that people forget about. Um, but I mean, 3D scanning will, will help that enormously. So. Um, it's 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 a must. I think out of out of all the the four or five points that we touched on, I think that one's going to be the one of, one of the most important, and it's here to stay. Yeah, for sure. Totally agree. Good, good. So give us, uh, Bill. I know you're a busy guy. You've got Evolve Lab on point scanning. Um, what do you do to relax, or how do you relax? Yeah. So I traditionally have been very bad about this. This year, I've gotten better. Um, I can really struggle, like I don't turn off, like even when the day, like when I'm done quote working, I'm on LinkedIn researching, seeing new technology, sharing it with my team, you know, like I just, I don't shut off, which is, I want to say not a good thing. Um, so what I'm trying to get better at is self-care and, and things like that. So one, some of the things that I do do for fun, 
uh, is I recently purchased uh, a summer board. I don't know if you've seen or, or heard these. No. Uh, it's, it's an electric skateboard that you ride like a snowboard. So it has, wow. yeah, so you have, you have your outside wheels like you do with a skateboard, but then directly underneath the board, there's these two casters, these center casters that rotate 360 degrees. And so you can actually ride on those center casters uh, and it's electric. And uh, so you can pivot and ride like a snowboard on, you know, pavement, uh, being able to do 180s or 360s and, or just carve. Um, and so that's something that I, I recently got about two months ago and have been enjoying that at, in some of my downtime. So. so, Bill, why is there not like loads of scratches on your face? That sounds dangerous. <laughs> oh, I, I've biffed it hard on that thing, definitely, 100%. Wow. I've, I've felt, uh, I've gotten bloodied and bruised on that thing uh, well enough, so. Uh, that's, um, that, sounds, that sounds quality. Now, I've done snowboarding before, and I've done uh, skateboarding, but not, this sounds like, was it difficult? I mean, you're only two months in. Are you, are you, are you good at it now, or? I'm, I would say I'm good at it now, but the learning curve is very steep. It's very awkward at the, at the beginning. Um, it's very difficult. Like uh, it, they say it, it usually would take three sessions before you, before it quote clicks. Um, yeah. Really what it is, is the, the mindset is you have to think of it like a snowboard. So you're, you're riding heel edge, toe edge, heel edge, toe edge. Once you get that, then, then you got it. But yeah, the learning curve is pretty steep. Because that sounds exactly when I switched from skis to snowboarding, I struggled a lot. I mean, it, it, my bum was just in constant pain <laughs> for four or five days. And it, it literally, and like I would consider my, my background sport as well. I played uh, soccer for 12 years professionally. So I would have considered myself a little bit eye-hand coordination and all, not, not too bad. But I really struggled with snowboarding. And there was a point after I think maybe midday four that I thought, where's, it, where's my skis? I'm going back on the skis. So th that sounds, and w have you always snowboarded? W was it a similar learning co curve with this, with this new board? Yeah, so I always skateboarded. I was a big skateboarder uh, growing yeah. up and I did a, a fair amount of wakeboarding as well. I went snowboarding once and similar to your experience, I thought even being a, on a board all that time, I thought I'd yeah. take snowboarding and I was horrible at it. Like my bum as well. <laughs> was so sore it's yeah. like oh do you, do you ski or do you snowboard well i fall i fall a lot that's what i do so um yeah it was it was very difficult and you know this you're riding on pavement so it's not as forgiving as yeah. snow either and so that's you really it. have to try to be uh conscious of that and i i definitely have, have fallen and bruised myself on this thing so very good right okay that's uh, i'll take your word for it i'm gonna have to try it i'm gonna google it now when i get out i'll get off here um, good. So, and, and I mentioned before pre-recording as well, we do move a lot of people to Colorado. Um, great, great place. Haven't been yet. It's on the list. Give us an idea of what they can expect when they get there. Oh man, it's beautiful here. Uh, we feel so fortunate and blessed to live here. People, to your point, do pay to vacation here, like come here. So uh, the fact to be able, it's similar to New York where you're at, you know, people do pay to go to New York and experience New York and vacation there. So, uh, but Colorado is beautiful. Uh, I would say every, almost every Sunday, we try to get in the mountains. My family and I, we go up there, we go picnic and check out Estes Park. Uh, we're only 30 minute drive from Rocky Mountain National Park. Uh, the, the views in and of them, themselves are incredible. Uh, it's very expensive to live here though. There's a lot of people moving here. So similar to New York, it, it, is, it is expensive. 
Um, but you, it's one of the most beautiful places in the United States. Uh, I can't say enough, you know, good things about the scenery and, and the experience and the culture. I mean, the culture here, you get, you get hiking, you get snowboarding and skiing. Uh, it has a great uh, beer scene. So there's great craft beer here. Uh, the culture here is, is really, really cool. So I, we love Colorado. Brilliant. I love it. Yeah, no, it's definitely on the list. I think I mentioned to you before the pre-construction podcast was all about me going and visit the various cities and experience different cultures. So post COVID, there's a, there's a lot of places I need to go and, and Colorado is definitely up there. So thank you for that. Well, Bill, listen, this has been invaluable. I'm really looking forward to getting this out here. Um, just for people that, that, that if they want to get in contact with you, if they're listening to the podcast and say, I want to hit up Bill with a question or, or a query, um, where's the best place to get you? Yeah, so if you just go to evolvelab.io, that's where we're at. We have a ton of free resources on there too. So if anyone's trying to learn computational construction or Dynamo, we have uh, e-learning courses for those, Rhino Inside, Revit. Um, all those are, are currently free on the website. And then the blog, there's tons of information on there. Um, so if you just check out evolvelab.io um, and you can just reach out on the website and get a hold of me on that. So, Brilliant. That's if you don't uh, hurt yourself. That's right. That crazy sport. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, thank you very much, Bill. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, appreciate you, Garrett. Thanks for having me. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that. Again, a big shout out to Bill for his time recording the podcast. There definitely is no question that Bill and the team over at Evolve Labs are disrupting the current process in place for architecture, construction and engineering. And it's a breath of fresh air. For anyone that is interested in catching up with Bill or getting more content, they have a fantastic YouTube channel. It's it's uh, Evolve BIM. And I'll actually put the link to their YouTube channel below. It's a great source of all things BIM and I highly recommend it. Um, anybody interested in reaching out to Bill directly, I will also put his LinkedIn profile, the link to his LinkedIn profile below. Feel free to reach out to him with any questions. As this is the eighth episode in our BIM series of podcasts, if you haven't caught the first seven, seven, they're available on Apple, uh, Google Podcasts and Spotify. Um, as always, folks, stay safe and we'll be in touch soon.